those of you that may be visiting today and others, we're on a two-year journey, approximately two years, through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're just getting started. We began at the first part of December talking about the birth of Christ, and we're going chapter by chapter, verse through verse, through the Scriptures. That's our method of teaching God's Word here. I think that's the appropriate way to do it. So probably about two years or so will be in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew's Gospel is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. From the close of the Old Testament and the time of Malachi to the time that Jesus was born, what we read about in Matthew's Gospel chapters 1 and 2, is a period of about 400 years. And during that 400 years, God did not speak to his people. There were no prophets that were sent God was totally silent during that time. But the people of Israel weren't without hope because they had the Scriptures. They had the Old Testament in which they could read. And there they learned that there was a Messiah coming, and they were hoping that a king would come and restore Israel back to the kingdom, uh, glory days that it had under uh, both David and Solomon. Well, after 400 years, God did speak again. And God spoke in a most powerful way. He gave the greatest demonstration that he'd ever given, more powerful demonstration than creation itself. It was greater than the worldwide flood, greater than the parting of the Red Sea that we read about in Moses' time. God sent the greatest miracle that the world has ever seen, and that was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, God Emmanuel, come to this earth to dwell with us. But God's greatest revelation did not come in the way that people expected. In fact, God's Son did not come riding in on clouds of glory. There were no angels that accompanied him, and there was no ivory throne that he sat upon. There there was no golden crown that was placed upon his head. But rather, Jesus came into the world, born into a human family, very poor. He was just a helpless baby, meek and lowly, born in nothing more than a cattle stall. Well, I think that you could probably understand Matthew's dilemma as he begins to describe this, because how is he going to convince people that the Messiah truly has come, that this one who was born in such obscurity truly was a king? How is he going to explain that? Well, Matthew does the only thing that he can do, and that's to go to the most respected source, to go to the place that people would believe And here he goes to the Word of God and to something that is indisputable because God has spoken it. And so Matthew goes to the prophecies of the Old Testament that point out very clearly that Jesus fulfills the Scripture that says that he is the Messiah. So over and over throughout the book of Matthew, we'll see that he quotes Old Testament Scripture. He makes statements such as, "...it was fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets." Now, here in chapter 2, we actually find four prophecies that were given in the Old Testament concerning Christ. One of those we talked about last week when uh, we were speaking about the wise men and the place of Jesus' birth. The wise men came and they asked, Where is he that is born, king of the Jews? And the answer that came back to them was that he is born in Bethlehem because the prophets foretold it. Now, today we're going to talk about two more prophecies that we find in the second chapter. Next week, I'll come back and we'll deal with the last of those as I preach a sermon entitled, The No Good Nazarene. But we're looking at two prophecies today. Uh, These are prophecies of providence. 
These are prophecies concerning the protection for Jesus Christ as he came into the world and how God sovereignly and divinely enabled him to complete his purpose, and that is to become the Savior of the world. I want us to look today in chapter 2, beginning with verse number 13. We'll read down through verse number 18. And I want you to notice here two more important prophecies that we find. If you'd stand with me, please, in reverence for the reading of God's Word. And I do hope that you have a Bible today so you can look at the Scriptures and see what we're talking about. But in Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse number 13, And when they were departed, and that's talking about the wise men, they'd come to visit Mary and Joseph and to present their gifts. Now they leave, and it says, And when they were departed... Behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, that's the first prophecy that we're dealing with today. Verse number 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We are so thankful for again for the first Sunday of the new year we can come and worship you. Lord, as we look into the book of Matthew and We see the prophecies of Jesus that are fulfilled. Help us, Lord, that we might also tell the story of Jesus and how he truly is the Savior come into the world to save us from our sins. Bless in this message today. Speak to our hearts through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to look once again at verse number 13. It says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. My message this morning is about the special providence of God to protect the young child Jesus from his enemies. I suppose that probably one of the greatest mysteries that we'll ever try to discover about Christ is that why people hated him so much. What was there about Jesus that people really hated so much? Now, right here in the very beginning of his life, I mean, no sooner than he's born into the world, he's never said anything, he's never done anything, he's never approached anyone, he's just a baby. And here we find that he's already hated, and there are people who seek to destroy his life. Now, the desire actually to kill Jesus goes back to the life and death struggle that we find way back in the Garden of Eden. When God gave the proto-evangelium in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, which is the promised seed of the woman that said that Jesus would come, there starts the beginning or is the beginning of the struggle of good and evil and here it is predicted. And God said that the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, would engage in a death match with Satan, who is of course the arch enemy of God and his people. And that... uh, 
warfare, that spiritual warfare would continue until Satan is completely subdued and then he's placed under the feet and his head crushed by the Savior himself. Now, when Jesus was born, the forces of Satan were already there. I mean, it was Satan who put the apathy into the minds of the religious leaders. And it was Satan who was there whispering into the ear of Herod who caused him to hatch that plot to kill Jesus. And then also Satan was the one who uh, gave Herod the idea of have the wise men return and let them tell you where Jesus is born and then you can go kill him. Well, short, uh, Satan is never short in his devices. He is the enemy of God. He's the enemy of God's people. And anyone who thinks that Satan does not exist and who believes that we're able to fight Satan in our own power is only fooling themselves. Satan is our great enemy. And the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians that we're engaged right now in a warfare. We're fighting against the rulers of darkness of this world, and we fight against principalities in high places, and none of that could have been more evident than in the birth of Christ. Now, because of that great warfare and the way that God chose that Jesus should come into the world, divine providence, divine protection was needed for Christ. And so Jesus came into the world in a human body. It was God's choice that he would come and he would grow, that he would experience all things that men experience. And so Jesus, in his birth, he was just as defenseless as any other baby that's ever been born of a human mother. And in order for Jesus to survive, for him to complete his mission that God had given him to save the world from our sins, then he must be protected. God's providence must be upon him. Now, what's peculiar about this is that this was already spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures. And the truth of the Old Testament uh, passages that reveal certain things about Christ, much of that was hidden until we come to the New Testament, and there we find out what the prophets were truly saying. And so as Matthew opens this up to his readers, he shows these Jewish people things that they did not know, and they clearly, or they could not clearly understand All of it was written right there in the Bible all along. And he tells them about how Jesus has fulfilled the Scriptures. Now let's look at two prophecies then that we find in this last part of chapter 2. The first one is the flight of faith. Here it says, The angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Now at this point... Uh, Mary and Joseph are completely unaware of Herod's scheme. I can imagine that when those wise men came to see them, that they announced who they were, they told Mary and Joseph about this long journey that they had just made, and as if there was any more confirmation needed, they certainly did understand much more at that point that this child that Mary bore was indeed truly the Son of God and the promised Messiah. And I'm sure that when those wise men came to Mary and Joseph, that they said to them, we're not the only ones who want to worship your son. We're not the only ones who want to come and bow down before him. They said, as soon as we leave here, we're going back to Jerusalem. We're going to tell Herod. We're going to tell all of Jerusalem that the king has been born. They'll be so glad to have this information so that they can come and worship the baby too. Well, that information changed, of course, because... The wise men received a warning from God in a dream. 
And they understood what Herod's true intent was. He didn't want to worship Jesus. He intended to kill him. And so what the wise men did, they left Mary and Joseph's house and they went home another way. They bypassed the city of Jerusalem so they wouldn't have to confront Herod and have to give up that information about where Christ was born. But God knew that that was not sufficient. He knew that Herod was not going to give up so easily. And so God in his providence did this. He sent an angel with a plan. There was an angel that appeared, and uh, just as an angel had appeared to them in the conception of the child, probably this is the angel Gabriel. He comes to them once more, and he warns them that they need to flee from their home. So he says to them, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. You know, I really don't think that Mary and Joseph fully understood what they were in for with the birth of Christ. They didn't really know what would happen to them. And if God had favored them so highly, remember that's what Mary herself said, God has favored me. And if God had favored them so highly... Why was this so difficult? Why did they have to leave their home? I mean, why, why did they have to, to go down to Egypt and live, that, live there? Why didn't God make this a very simple thing for him? Why does he make it comfortable and pleasant for them? They're highly favored of God. And we might ask the very same question today. Why is it so difficult for us to live a Christian life? Why do the scriptures talk about taking up a cross daily and following after Jesus? Why why does the scripture say, and why did Jesus himself say, that they'll hate you because they hated me? Why isn't living a Christian life a simple thing for us to do? Well, that's a good question, and we wonder about it. And I really don't have all the answers to that question, but I do know this. If it was so difficult for Mary and Joseph and so difficult for Jesus, I doubt very seriously that we're going to find any promise in the Bible anywhere that says that it'll be less for us. I know there are many people that are preaching that, and they'll say that God wants you to be successful, God wants you to be healthy, God wants you to be wealthy, but we don't find that in the Bible anywhere. There's nothing in the Word of God that says that we're not going to experience as followers of Jesus Christ the very same things that Mary and Joseph and Jesus went through because of this warfare that's going on with Satan. But what I do know is this, is that they obeyed the voice of the angel. They had faith to believe that. And so they left, they were spared, the child was spared, and the blessing for all of us today is that eternal life is preserved for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Now, if I have one answer today for the problem of pain and suffering for Christians, I think it would be that we must be taught to depend upon God. The more trouble that there is, the more pain and the more heartache that comes into our lives, the more that we're taught to depend upon God the greater and more that our problems are. We learn very quickly that if we're going to get through this as Christians, we must depend upon Almighty God. Now, just think what it would be like without Him. I mean, what if we didn't have the presence of God in our lives? What what if Satan could have free reign with the Christian and do anything that he wants to do? Well, the blessing of it all is that God is still working just like he did in the Old Testament, working with Mary and Joseph and the story that we have of Jesus' birth. God is still working. He hasn't abandoned us. And if you're a true believer, you already know this. 
Because you know that God is able through your pain and your suffering, all the troubles that come into your life, you know this. God is able to bring you peace and contentment and safety. God takes care of you. And if you haven't yet realized that as a Christian, then I'm telling you, you must be out of the will of God. He takes care of his people. And every day we see that God has a sovereignly controlled plan. He reveals over and over again that he is the one who's in control. Now let's look here. Let's see how that these pieces fit together. It was prophesied hundreds of years before this that these very steps that Mary and Joseph took to protect Jesus, these things would be needed. And so Mary and Joseph must take the young child into Egypt for safety and protection. Now the scriptures have already explained that. And so if the scripture says it, there must be a way that this is made to happen. And so in the providence of God, there came this angel with the plan to tell them what they must do. Now, what did the angel give them? What's in that plan? Well, we notice this, that it's the asylum for protection. There's a way to protect the child. There is a place that's prepared, and there is a way that they're going to get there. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about how the, or the place itself in just a moment. But for now, how are they going to get into Egypt? You might say, well, it's an easy thing to do. All they do is just pack up their belongings, climb on a donkey or whatever they had, take off down to Egypt. Just walk there and everything will be all right. How many of you ever moved to a new area? I mean, you had to pick up from one place and move to a totally different new area. That's not an easy thing to do. No, I remember when uh, I first came to California from Kentucky. There was a lot of planning involved for coming here. I mean, there was a lot of expense that was involved. The finances had to be put together. I had to find a place to live. There was food to buy. And you know, you you get here and you have to have everything prepared, all the utilities and the deposits and all that that has to go. So it's a very expensive thing for you to move from one place to another. Just recently... Uh, Jared and Lauren moved here from Kentucky, and that truck that they rented, and the gas that we had to buy, and all, not we bought, Jared bought, but all uh, all of that gas and all those things that went with that to get here, that was a very expensive thing. Well, how did Mary and Joseph afford to do this? How would they get down into Egypt? Here we have a poor family. They have no savings account at all. And as we were talking about in our Sunday morning form class this morning, they took Jesus into the temple to dedicate him, and uh, they couldn't bring the offering that someone who was wealthy could bring or someone measurably well off. They couldn't bring a lamb for sacrifice. Rather, there was a provision in the law that said that they could bring birds, two turtle doves, a pigeon, and so forth. That was brought by poor people. And that is exactly the kind of offering that Mary and Joseph brought. So how are they going to afford it? How are they going to get down into Egypt? God knew about this. God had already been preparing for it. As I said, hundreds of years before. It's all prophesied. And so God has a perfect plan and a place for them to go. Now let's go back and let's think about the wise men for just a minute. How did the wise men get it to Bethlehem? I mean, these were actually wealthy men. And they brought with them, do you remember, some very special gifts for Mary and Joseph, or actually for the baby, gifts that they presented to him. One of those gifts, I'll mention just one of them, was gold. One of the gifts was gold. Now, don't you think that God knew that they had to go down to Egypt? And so God had already prepared this for them. The wise men brought the gold, and so they had finances for their journey. So what God did, he just gifted their bank account with exactly what they needed. 
Has anybody here ever experienced that? I mean, I don't mean are you rich, but I mean, have you ever had an experience when you had something that you had to pay for, you, you had some kind of a need, and you say, I have no hope for this. There's no way I can get out of this. I just can't afford to do this. And all of a sudden, God puts the resources right into your hands, exactly the thing that you need. You see, God knows about such things. God is able to prepare you for things like that. Now, here with Mary and Joseph, God prepared it for them before they were even aware of it. And so Mary and Joseph were able to have the money that they needed to go down into Egypt. Now, think for just a moment what would have happened if God came to Joseph and before the wise men got there, he said, you know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to go to Egypt. Well, what would Joseph do? Well, he, he couldn't even find a place to put Mary so they could have the baby. What would he do? Would he be wringing his hands? He'd be running around all over the place. What will I do? How will I pay for this? How will I support my family? It can't be done. But God waited until it was time to go, and God had already prepared everything that they needed in order for them to get into Egypt. You know, there's some of you here today that you may have some money in your bank accounts that God has put there for you, and one of these days he's going to show you exactly why it's there. And I suspect as well, now I'm not one of these health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. You already know that. I got, I got my blood pressure up this morning talking about that. But uh, you know that I'm not going to preach that to you, but I'll tell you that some of you have probably got some money in your bank accounts that God's going to tell you what you need to do with it. And he's going to tell you that because your church has a need, because his work has a need, because there's something that's going on, I put it there for you, I blessed you with this so you can be a blessing to other people. And you know that's always the way that you ought to look at everything that God gives you, every single dollar that passes through your hands. Now, God supplies your needs, and sometimes he puts that extra there to help somebody else. What did Jesus do throughout his whole life? He helped other people. And that's something I'm afraid that we have simply forgotten as a church, as the people of God today, that we have a responsibility to help other people. And so here they have the financing secured. They have a way to get down into Egypt. God has provided for their asylum. But let's think for just a moment about that place of asylum. Now remember, this is Egypt. Well, did you know that Egypt was already prepared to receive Joseph and Mary and Jesus? I talked about in the very beginning that 400 years that between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Did you know God was already preparing for this? Because in that 400-year period is the time that Alexander the Great had conquered the whole known world. And what Alexander did, he founded a city in Egypt called Alexandria, Egypt. Still there today, Alexandria, Egypt. And he made that actually a haven for Jews. Oppressed Jews, people that were uh, uh, scattered around, Jewish people that were hated, he made it a haven for Jews. So at the time that Jesus was born, there were up to one million Jews that were living in Egypt. And so God had already prepared the place for them. Joseph could go there, and no doubt, Joseph probably had kinsmen there. Joseph may have had family there. There were people there that would accept his family. They were Jews coming into another Jewish community. And so they would help Joseph to find work. They would secure a place for him to live. God was already working, setting all of this up. That is exactly what God does. Nothing is ever a surprise to God. God knows what's going to happen in your life. Nothing's a mystery to him. 
know, I look back on my life, and I can see how that God specially prepared things for me to come here to California. Now, I can't say that, that all of the things that happened to me happened randomly, and that uh, all of these pieces came together, but they could have just as well fallen out some other way, and I would be doing something completely different from what I'm doing today. I don't believe that for a minute. I trust in the providence of God, and I know that God has led me to a place like this, to this place, and to say otherwise is a denial of God's providential care over his people. The old Baptist Philadelphia Confession of Faith makes a statement. It says, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever comes to pass. You know what? Couldn't be any more evident than we find this carefully prepared plan of God for these people, Mary and Joseph, to take the baby Jesus into Egypt for protection. That was a place where Herod could not reach them. So we read in verse number 14, when he arose... He took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now there's a third piece about this flight of faith into Egypt that I want to mention. And the third part is the association with his people. Now you've heard me repeat this often that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. There are things that happen in the New Testament that were prophesied in the Old Testament, and yet the prophecies that those prophets made, some of the things were concealed to them, so they didn't fully understand all the implications of everything that they prophesied. But when we come into the New Testament, there are statements that are made that help us to understand those things better. And often... The New Testament talks about things concerning Christ that are prefigured, things that are shadowed in the Old Testament about Jesus. So when Matthew says in verse number 15, out of Egypt have I called my son, there he's referring to a prophecy that we find in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 it says, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, if you go back and you read the Old Testament and you read the context of what Hosea had to say, you'll find out that what Hosea meant when he said this, he's speaking about the nation of Israel. He's talking about Israel when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage in Egypt. Now, that was 1,500 years before Christ was born. So why does Matthew bring up this particular scripture and says or refers to Jesus fulfilling this prophecy? Hosea could not have known the meaning of this. Well, Matthew has insight. Uh, The Holy Spirit has opened this up to him. And so he shows us that Hosea's prophecy is actually a type of Christ. Jesus came to the Jews. He was born of the Jews. He identified nationally with Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. And the type that we have here is just as Moses led the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt... The picture is, so will Jesus lead God's chosen people out of the bondage of sin. Coming out of Egypt is a type of salvation. Egypt represents the world. And being brought out of Egypt, that's symbolic of God's people coming out of a life of sin. 
And that is exactly what Jesus does for all who trust him. He leads us out of the bondage of sin. He delivers our souls from the corruption of sin and death. Now, in the first chapter, the angel told Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so just as Moses led Israel out of the bondage in Egypt, so will Jesus lead his people out of a life of sin and darkness. There's an old hymn that we used to sing when I was a child. I, I can't even remember if we've ever sung it here at Berean. If we have, it's been a long, long time. But the song's title is, Out of My Bondage, Sorrow and Night. And the first verse of the song goes, Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus I come, Jesus I come. Into thy freedom, gladness and light, Jesus I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health. Out of my want and into thy wealth. Out of myself and into thyself, Jesus I come to thee. Now, I wish I had time to go through all the words of that song, but that is a beautiful picture, how that Jesus places all of our sins upon him, and he brings us out of that bondage that we're in. So here is a picture of eternal life and the providence of God to bring us out of the ruin of sin and to bring us into the peace of God's sheltering fold. Now, you see here, when you read things like this in the Bible, out of Egypt have I called my son, that, that's not just a simple statement about Jesus going and living in Egypt and then coming back to Israel. This is actually a statement of triumph. This is a wonderful prophecy because it's that great picture that we have there that it's Jesus' intention not to leave one soul for whom he died in the bondage of sin. He's going to bring all of us out. We're not going to stay in bondage. And so all who trust in him will be delivered from the stain of sin that is so dark that nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can wash it away. Now, in the next message, we'll, we'll see Jesus back in Israel again. He doesn't stay in Egypt. Out of Egypt have I called my son. And what he comes back to do is to be the Savior. He becomes the Lamb of God slain for our sins. So he must return from Egypt. He must come back to Israel because all the steps for him becoming the Savior, living his life, going to the cross, dying for sin, rising from the grave, all of that must take place. And so he'll be called back out of Egypt. Now, there's still another prophecy, though, that we have here. Uh, Joseph took the family out of Egypt, and it was, or to Egypt, rather, and it was then discovered by Herod that the wise men had slighted him. They weren't coming back. Now look at verse number 16 again. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, in Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. So we have three prophecies that we found in chapter 2 so far. One is the birth of Christ, which we talked about last week, the place of his birth, I'm saying, and that's in Bethlehem. The second is the flight of faith. And now the next one that we have, the next prophecy is the cruelty of the king. Herod realized after a time that the wise men were not going to return. They weren't going to bring him the location of the child. Now, here we have to be amazed at the providence of God once again because it would have been so simple if 
Herod had just sent some of his soldiers to accompany the wise men, and right there they would have found out immediately where Jesus was. But you see, Herod was the type of uh, egomaniac that he thought that the wise men would not dare to refuse a directive that he'd given, and so he couldn't imagine that they wouldn't do exactly as he told them to do. And so he thought that he was just hours away from discovering where Jesus was. Well, when he found out otherwise, he was so angry that he went into a violent rage. Now, I want you to notice next the anger that ruled him. Last week, I mentioned the character of Herod. He was a ruthless ruler. He had no regard for human life. Augustus Caesar said about Herod that it was better to be Herod's sow than to be his son. And what he meant was, in, in that country, they had actually had laws against killing a pig, but they didn't have any law that said you couldn't kill your son. Now, did you know that that often went, went, took place often in the Roman Empire? When a baby was born and they didn't want that baby, a son, and most of the time a daughter, if it was born, if they didn't want that child, they would simply kill it. And so Herod, or rather Augustus, or, Uh, Augustus Caesar said about Herod, it's better to be Herod's sow than to be his son. What he meant was that Herod had three of his sons killed because he thought that they were planning a coup against him. He murdered his favorite wife. He thought that she was having an affair. Uh, She wasn't, but he had her killed anyway. And then what he did, he went and found a prostitute who looked just like that wife, and he named her, gave her that wife's name. And he married her. So he, he, he names this woman that he married after the wife that he just killed. Well, Herod was a very wicked man. He was most likely uh, racked with a sexually transmitted disease, and he became insane. Just before he died, he had prominent citizens of the city rounded up and had them killed. And his purpose in doing that was because he wanted people to cry at his funeral. They knew that they wouldn't cry for he knew he would, they wouldn't cry for him, and so he had all of these people killed so they'd be crying at his death. Now let me ask you, is this man Herod, is he just some kind of an accident in history? I mean, if the prophecy from Jeremiah is to be fulfilled, won't it take someone who is totally insane to commit such an atrocity as Herod did? I mean, it would take a, an angry person, an ego, an ego uh, 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 just a, an egomaniacal type of person, an insanely jealous type of person to do what Herod did. Now, Jeremiah had prophesied it. His ruler, or his anger, was ruling him, and so this brought about the action at Ramah. Now, the action at Ramah, we've just read, is the slaughter of all the babies that were two years old and under. And there are many people who believe that this is what dates the coming of the wise men to see Jesus. The reason that Herod killed the babies two years old and under is because Jesus was probably between the ages of one and two years old when the wise men actually came. And so when we see the nativity scenes that had the wise men there, the things that we're so familiar with, they probably, most likely, almost definitely were not there when Jesus was born. So they probably visited up to the time that Jesus was two years old. Now you'll notice in verse number 16 that it's not just babies in Bethlehem that were killed, but it says here, in all the coast thereof. So Herod wanted to make sure that there was no chance that he was going to miss Jesus in this infanticide. And so he just enlarges the area in which he kills all of these babies. 
Ramah is about the same distance north of Jerusalem as Bethlehem is to the south. And so what people believe, many do, is that Herod just drew a ring around Jerusalem that would be about a seven-mile about a seven-mile radius, and he killed all the babies that were two years old and under in that radius. Now, let's think about the prophecy again. The Old Testament prophesied the weeping at Ramah. How would you ever connect all of that? How would you connect that to Bethlehem, even if you knew that there was to be an infanticide? I mean, all the, all the infants in Bethlehem are going to be killed. How are you going to connect this? Well, God knew that Herod's cruelty would extend all around Jerusalem. And so Ramah in the Old Testament is included in this. So then, again, how does Matthew connect it all? I mean, how does he connect it to this particular time unless Jesus truly is the one that's prophesied in the Old Testament? Weeping at Ramah would not occur unless the very same thing happened there as happened in Bethlehem. Now, let's go back to the earlier thought that the prophet who prophesied this could not have known this particular fulfillment. So what was Jeremiah writing about? Well, Jeremiah was actually writing about the deportation of people in Jerusalem to Babylon. Ramah is a city that lies in the northern kingdom, right on the border of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And Ramah was actually a gathering place for Jews that were taken out of Jerusalem when Jerusalem fell. And from Ramah, that's where they were deported to Babylon. So the weeping at Ramah, prophesied by Jeremiah, is that all of these mothers had their children that were taken into slavery and would be taken into Babylon. And so they cried about this. Now, the Scripture also says, that, uh, it says, Rachel weeping for her children. Now, how does Rachel get into the picture? Well, if you remember, Rachel is the wife of Jacob, and her, she had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Ramah actually lies in the territory that was given to Benjamin when the children of Israel came into Canaan. And so when it says Rachel weeping for her children, that's a reference to these descendants of hers that came out of Benjamin that lived in Jerusalem and that area there, and they were taken into Babylon. Now these then are prophecies that can only make sense when you see how that Jesus fits into this perfectly. So we see that he was born of a virgin... Thus, it was prophesied. He was born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophet said. He was taken into Egypt. The prophet said that as well. He was the impetus for an infanticide. That comes from the prophets. And so, God knows all of this. And every single word that God utters is absolutely true. So, this is why Matthew goes back into the Old Testament... And he takes from these scriptures these different prophecies because this shows Jewish readers that he truly is the Christ. Let me read to you a comment that was made by the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry. He said, Some observe another design of providence in the murder of the infants. By all the prophecies of the Old Testament, it appears that Bethlehem was the place and this the time of the Messiah's nativity. Now all the children of Bethlehem born at this time being murdered and Jesus only escaping, none but Jesus could pretend to be the Messiah. Herod now thought that he had baffled all Old Testament prophecies, had defeated the indications of the star and the devotions of the wise men by ridding the country of this new king. Having burnt the hive, he concludes he had killed the master bee. But God in heaven laughs at him and has him in derision. 
what crafty, cruel devices are in men's hearts. The counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. Now let me conclude the message today with this thought. Now some of you, maybe sitting there today, you're kind of putting all the pieces together. I read a, a statement from the Philadelphia Confession of Faith which said, God hath decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably all things whatsoever come to pass. Now, as you're reading this story, you may be thinking today, if God knew all of these things would happen, if he knew that all of these little babies were going to be killed, then why did God allow that? Now, the question is actually similar to what we talked about earlier. Why is there so much suffering for Christians? Why is there so much pain and suffering for the people of God? And the solution to both of these different questions is pretty much the same. Now, let me propose an answer to those questions that is supported by the Word of God. Here's your last statement today. There is more gained with Christ than is lost with the world. Now, you remember that cosmic struggle that I was talking about in the very beginning of the message, that proto-evangelium that's given in Genesis 3.15? There is a promise that what Adam lost by sin that much more would be gained in the righteousness of Christ. Now, the suffering of uh, the deaths of these infants and the suffering for Christians, all of those things happen in an imperfect world that's ruled by sin. God is not the author of that sin. Sin entered into the world when Adam chose to disobey God, and so all of the human family became sinners. Did you know that God could have left it that way? God could have decided that, well, I'm just going to leave man in his sin. And every person that's born into the world, they'll die condemned and they'll spend eternity in hell with no hope. God could have done that. And God would have been perfectly just if he'd done so because we broke his laws. But what God does, he tempers his justice with mercy. Now, his justice is still satisfied, but in God's mercy... He decided that he would send Jesus Christ into the world to die for our sins. What Adam did was he lost the right to paradise by disobeying God. Now think a minute what Adam lost. Adam was in the Garden of Eden. Eden was a place where Adam stayed and he tilled the Garden of God. And if he hadn't sinned against God, then he would have remained in that garden. And forever, he would have been a tender probably of that garden. But Adam fell. And then when Christ came to the world, what he gained for us is far more than what Adam lost. What Christ gained for us is an eternal home in heaven. Not where we are just simply servants of God, which we are, but not just servants of God. But the Bible also says that we'll rule and reign with him. So we lost paradise, a place on earth through Adam but we gained the eternal home in heaven through Jesus Christ. That's far better. And so what we have in heaven, that place that God grants us, is peace and contentment. There's never any problem with the serpent there. There is no sin there, but we gain this this contentment that we have of living with God in heaven forever. And so what Christ gained is far more than what we lost in this world. Now, the thing that I want to ask you today is have you realized that? I mean, as a Christian or someone who doesn't even know Christ today, have you heard this and realized this, 
Do you still have your mind upon and your thoughts upon a material world? I mean, are you still looking for this, what we have in our very own constitution, a guarantee of the pursuit of happiness? Is that what you're looking for? Well, did you know in Jesus Christ, you don't gain the pursuit of happiness. You gain the capture of happiness. You get happiness itself. You get contentment. God has provided that for you. And so you have lasting peace. You have eternal peace. You have contentment. And the way that you get that is to trust Jesus Christ and him alone. Trust no other. Now, folks, this is what I'm talking about when we talk about the Christ of the Bible. This is the Christ of prophecy and of providence. He never tries to save anybody. He will save you from your sins. All that you need to do is trust him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for time spent in your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truths that we learn from the, from the word of God and how, Lord, that we are so thankful that Jesus came to this world and he provided a way that we could live forever in heaven. I just pray, Lord, there's anyone here today who hasn't trusted you as Savior. They realize there's only one way to come to God, only one way to get in this place of heaven, and that's through Jesus Christ. Believe in his name and the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. Just ask you, Lord, you'd open the eyes of some person today to realize this. And then for Christians that we have here today, there is pain, there are problems, there are sicknesses that we endure. But Lord, you have promised so much more. You've given us a way to overcome all of those things and to live through those things. And we thank you for that peace and contentment that you give. Bless in this time of invitation. Draw people to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.